we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. Thank you, Smiling Al, for that introduction. This is episode 75 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Scott, you're out there somewhere in the internet. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? Going well. So, um, Scott, I reckon this is our last episode um, before we have a bit of a break. And I didn't tell you this before. Well, we're not going to do a Christmas one next year, next week. I don't think I've got time. I've got um, oh, okay. a bunch of other other things happening, and I think it might be just too difficult. So, I thought what we might do is um, during the Christmas break, we'll re- repeat a few of our better episodes. So. I'm tr- <laughs> I'm trawling through those, and uh, we'll pop those up because that's what podcast people tend to do. They they trot out yeah, there. They do, yeah, yeah. So um, their best jobs for the year. Yeah. yeah, actually, there was some stuff in there that I because I've started listening to them to try and pick out the best ones, and um, hmm. the stuff in there that you forget saying, and um, and you've said it yourself. It's amazing how much you forget yourself. So um, it is. It's very true. You do forget. Uh, you do forget things that you wouldn't think you'd forget. But mm. you, you do forget them, yeah. Mm. And I came across the one where we had our little disagreement about um, social Muslim, Muslim light, and a buy the <laughs> and a buy the book Muslim. <laughs> I thought we'd have. The, I thought she'd bring up the disagreement we had over uh, states having income taxing powers and that sort of stuff. Well, that was that's going back a while now. So that um, is going back a while now. Yeah. The other thing is the audio quality in some of the earlier episodes was terrible. So I congratulate any <laughs> listeners who who stayed with us in the early days of our audio. And um, so thankfully the audio is a lot better. But it was it was pretty ordinary in parts back then. But anyway. Um, <laughs> That's enough navel gazing uh, from us, um, Scott. First cab off the rank. I came across this uh, a fundraising venture for a new cartoon series for Muslim children. Uh, there's links to it on our website, and basically, uh, the Australian Muslim community who are not happy with uh, Pepper Pig. Uh, who's a current sort of cartoon character? I guess, I guess Peppa Pig must be the current day equivalent of bananas in pajamas or something like that, Scott. Like, it is. Yeah, I mean Peppa Pig is is huge. Yeah, um, it is massive and that sort of stuff. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, Peppa Pig has taken the world by storm right. everywhere except the Middle East. Um, it's, 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 I assume that the pep, the objection to Peppa Pig from the Muslim community is because she is a pig. <laughs> well, <laughs> perhaps. She's a pig and she's a she. Like, maybe it's both. Good point, yeah. Maybe it is both, yeah. yeah good point, I didn't think of that. So, um, yeah. so, yes. So the Muslim community is fundraising so that they can produce their own kids' cartoons for Australian Muslim kids because heaven forbid that they would watch Peppa Pig. So the new cartoon series is going to be called Baraka Hills. It's in the early stages of production. It tells a story of the Abdullah family and their everyday experiences in the town of Baraka Hills. 
It is a small town with a predominantly Muslim population. The Masjid is the central hub of the town with Imam Nuruddin as the community leader and role model. Scott, the driving force for me in this whole stuff that we do is just the division that religion creates. And I can't stand the way that it divides children. And this sort of project is exactly the sort of thing we have to fight against. It might sound simple and innocent, but but it's just encouraging a parallel life. It's not encouraging integration and assimilation. It's saying we're different, we stay different, and we live different. And I can't stand this sort of crap. It just... It's bad for our society. Your thoughts? I'm probably going to disagree with you there. <laughs> I think really? it is. I think yeah. I think it is. I think it is innocent and that sort of stuff. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the Facebook page, flipping through it and that sort of stuff, it is just a purple bear there who's. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked at any of the videos, but I imagine he's singing and dancing and that sort of stuff. I do take your point, though, that religion does tend to divide the community. And you do have, I mean, what is it? There's only one in, what, two and a half percent, two percent of the population are Muslim or something like that in Australia. Two and a half, yep. Yeah, two and a half percent. And you've got two and a half percent of the population out there saying, well, we can't allow our kids to watch Peppa Pig and that sort of stuff, therefore we've got to have our own uh, thing. I don't know where it's going to be broadcast if it's only apply, if it's only going to be targeted to the children of two and a half percent of the population. I would imagine it can't be on free to air or anything like that. I imagine it's going to have to be streamed on the net and that sort of stuff. Why, why not? But I mean, there's no reason why it couldn't be on free to air. Well, it's got to have an audience to justify yeah, well, that's it on the free problem. to air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it, it could end up. It could end up on free to air. But there's no audience and that sort of stuff, so therefore you're not going to have any, re- not going to have any advertising revenue from it, and so on and so forth. Um, so I imagine it's going to be streamed via the net and that sort of stuff. So you're then going to have kids that don't even watch TV; they're going to be watching TV via the internet and that sort of stuff. So I do take your point that it does divide the community. Um, however, I didn't really see anything. I mean, there's, there's, you know, you go through the comments and that sort of stuff and this one i picked up john how dare you tell us we should not watch peppa pig if you don't like it don't watch it keep your own keep you own way of life in your own house don't tell us what to do you arrogant people um i don't know i do take your point it it did it is it is a divisive act in the community and it will divide it will divide children and that sort of stuff when you don't want them to be you don't want kids divided i mean we can't we can't ban it but we can certainly we can certainly criticize it and say Mm. this is just segregating people more and more i mean our vietnamese immigrants didn't need a vietnamese children's cartoon nor did the italians and the greeks like people just you know, fit in. That's when in Rome, do as the Romans do to some extent. Like this, this is just um, 
abhorrent to an, a, a homogenous society. It's just creating walls and it's to be not only discouraged but just severely criticised, I think. I think it, sh- I think it should be criticised um, in the way you're criticising it. Mm. Not because it's come from the Muslims or anything like that, but just because it is creating a division within our community. Mm. I think those sort of criticisms are fine. I do think that uh, criticising basically because it's come from the Muslims, those are, that's wrong. But I do, I do take your point on it being divisive within our community. Yeah. It wouldn't matter if it, was, if it was a Jewish cartoon or a Hindu cartoon or whatever, I'd still object to it. It's just... Yeah, and I, and I fully understand why, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we want yeah, this function... I mean, if we want this civilization experiment to be successful, we need our kids mixing and growing up together and having shared experiences, and that just goes completely against that. So um, I hope... Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I, I would just... Like I said, I think that you should criticise it based on the way you've you've raised your criticism then, rather than it being from the Muslims. I just think we should criticise it for being something that divides the community. Mm. Mm. Speaking of division, uh, well, moving on from that, uh, last week, Scott, we reported on the woman who was suing police over a terrorism raid, and she refused to give evidence unless she could... Uh, where I think either the niqab or the burqa. It was one or the no, other. No, it was in a niqab. Yes. It was in a niqab she wanted to give the evidence in. And yeah. the judge said, um, well, you know, I'm not going to allow evidence in the circumstances. Offered her various alternatives, which she refused. And apparently mm. the same woman in the same court, same case, has been refusing to stand for the judge when the judge enters the courtroom. So, you know, dear yeah. listener, if you... If you haven't been in a courtroom, but basically they all work like, work like this, that people get in there before the judge is ready, and then the last person to enter is the judge or magistrate, and the bailiff announces all rise, and everybody in the room gets to their feet, judge sits at their chair, and then everyone else sits. So this has been going on for a long time in every court, and, of course, Mutia El Zahed... Um, refused to stand and the judge again the same female judge said I noticed that you haven't been and is there a reason and uh, uh, the instructions to the barrister was that she does not stand for anyone except Allah Um, the judge warned her that this was disrespectful behaviour under new laws which make it an offence not to stand in court because this has happened in the past with, I think, bikies and people like that who refuse to mm. show respect to the judge. So, uh, as far as we know, she hasn't been sort of charged or convicted of any contempt offence, but she's in the firing line for it there. So, you know, one of the things that I find ridiculous about this is that she's the plaintiff in the case, mm. she's the one who's taking the action against the police. Wouldn't you think that, um, Something would trip over in your mind thinking, oh, I'd better stand, I'd better do, you know, I'd better do everything I can to butter up this judge. But clearly not. Yeah. Well, when your priorities are Allah 
above everything else than even winning your own court case. That's your well, priorities. This is, this is the thing. Yeah. This, I mean, these. this is the mentality that allows people to throw themselves, you know, with a suicide vest into a, you know, a crowded venue Market and blow themselves, themselves up and other people. Is They just don't care about themselves as much as they care about Allah and the afterlife. So mm. even though it's harmful to our own case, uh, that's not a problem. It's an extraordinary device. It just makes me... It makes me wonder why she's taking the case in the first place. It makes me wonder if she's doing this whole thing just to grandstand and make up a a, a big thing about, um, you know, the, the Western judicial system being against Muslims. You know, it's... It's not making it's not making a whole lot of sense to me. Well, a whole host of reasons, I'm sure, it would be to prove a point and to get compensation. And um, she's going the yeah. wrong way about getting compensation. Like yeah. you know, the the compensation is something that you could you could understand someone going for. Yes, but refusing to stand up for a judge and that sort of stuff, who's going to be making the decision in the compensation case, I, I find that ridiculous. You know. I mean, her own, her own uh, barrister said... Um, uh, yeah, she said, he said anyway that um, it's not something he... Uh, um, according to my instructions, she won't stand for anyone except Allah, which I'm not particularly happy with. Yes. You know, so that in itself ought to be enough to set off warning bells, I would have thought. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's an indication of a reluctant barrister, I think. <laughs> <laughs> He's stuck there. So, uh, uh, if you are, you know, while we're still on the topic of, of the veil, uh, an article came through from Quillette uh, titled "The Hijab and the Regressive Left's Absurd Campaign to Portray Free Thinking Women." Goes on for many pages, mm. but a few of the key ideas to come from it. Um, is it's basically looking at these situations where the, uh, different women are applauded for wearing the hijab in various circumstances. Um, the first woman in a hijab to anchor a television news broadcast, to dance as a ballerina, to fence in the Olympics, um, to blah, blah, and it says, cue for gasps at the sheer progressive splendour of the moment. Uh, pose in Playboy. So it's making the point that uh, these women wearing the hijab in these unusual circumstances are being lauded for, for, for progressiveness and for feminist statements when in fact it's the complete opposite. It's, it is the complete opposite. It really was, you know... <laughs> Reading the thing, I wanted to pull my hair out and scream. I mean, it was just amazing that uh, you've got these idiots out there who applaud women for doing this, when the reality is they shouldn't be doing it anyway. It really is madness that, you know, you've got situations like, you know, there's that, uh, there's that young lady in Saudi Arabia who is now being arrested, I mm. think. On charges because she photographed herself outside a restaurant. She was out on her own and she was not wearing a hijab. Mm. And she's been arrested on the charge of oh, 
morality or something like that. Mm. Uh, I forget what the charge is. But I, I find that repugnant, that that sort of thing still goes on in 2016. And the women that are out there lauding these women for competing in the hijab and that sort of stuff, mm. if they were subjected to the laws the way that they are in Saudi Arabia, mm. they would be calling out for everything to try and stop it and get it reversed. Mm. It's It really is incredibly hypocritical of them to carry on like that. And it really does... You know, it, it says it right there. It, it um, The left's absurd campaign to betray free-thinking women. It really does. It really does portray. It really does betray free-thinking women. It's incredible. It's it's such a symbol of of subjugation of women, and we're in such a post-truth era, Scott. That Mm. ordinarily you might think that people would just say, "Oh no, no, it's it's okay if they want to do that. Just let them do that. Do that." But. In a, in a Trump-like performance, people double down and say, "Not only should we just let them do it, but it's 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 a symbol of feminist liberation." <laughs> R- rather than just trying to say, "Oh, it's you know, live and let live. Let people do what they want to do," you know, and might not necessarily agree with it, but okay, if that's what you want to do, but. But no, it's it's a moment no, to it, be it, applauded. Like this is what you do it, when something is completely wrong. You, you you don't just say let it pass. You say, in fact, it's wonderful. Exactly. It, and just because you say it, that's that's good enough. <laughs> so um, yeah, it really it really is it really is absolutely disgusting that you know you've got you know feminist. The, the feminist left in the United States principally clapping their hands for these women mm. when they ought to be standing there shoulder to shoulder saying this is disgusting that these women are forced to wear this sort of thing. Mm. So to quote a few yeah. bits from this article, it says, Few spectacles are more puzzling, disturbing, hypocritical and potentially damaging to women's rights than the campaign in some purportedly liberal press outlets to normalise the hijab and portray it as a hallmark of feminist pride and dignity. Uh, talks about that lady, Muhammad, who competed in the Olympics uh, for the American fencing team. And a bit of background information, Muhammad's mother chose this sport for her because she could practice it while wearing a headscarf. That's why she ended up a fencer. (laughs) The Huffington Post saw fit to inform us that this restricted captive of her mother's worldview was winning hearts everywhere and her participation was, of all things, a feminist moment. How true. A, a captive of her mother's worldview and we've got a... F- is being lauded as a feminist moment. Oh, you know, the thing about the whole veil is... Uh, another quote here. A shame-based retrograde view of the female body as nothing but a provoker of male lust, forms the core of modesty dress codes, be they Islamic, Christian or Jewish. Such codes implicitly brand the women who choose not to comply as impious sluts, inferior to the righteous ones strutting about in their ostentatiously self-segregating get-up. 
So, that, that's like this. A couple of key things with this veil is one, it's men forcing their power over women and subjugating them. There's no doubt that that's you know one big aspect of it. Absolutely, and, it is. It, it really is the biggest aspect of it, really. And, and then the women themselves are, are culturally accepting this idea that if you don't cover up, you are promiscuous, and therefore mm. women are forced culturally and socially by other women to cover up because otherwise they're a slut. Yeah. And in countries where you've got true freedom, if you are covering up by choice when you know that there are women out there who are being forced to cover up, you are just abandoning uh, the sisterhood. So... Yeah, you've hit the nail right on the head. They are abandoning the sisterhood. It, mm. it really is. It really is bloody frustrating when you read something like that. And you know, these are the, the the women that are writing this sort of stuff in the United States. They can go home and sleep with their boyfriends, mm. not necessarily their husbands, and that sort of stuff. Mm. But you can't do that in Saudi Arabia or Iran or anywhere else. Yes. You know, it's it really is absolutely disgusting that that they're not actually calling it out for what it is. You yeah. know, they ought to be saying that it's disgusting. Yeah. There's a kind of, you know, and we have to accept the psychological situation where women are indoctrinated into this from a very, very early age. So uh, some women who, who hate the veil but are forced to wear it will actually have their little girls wearing the veil earlier than they need to. And one of the reasons is so that they get used to it and won't resent it as much when it's forced upon them at a later age. I mean, this sort of thing yeah. happens. Um, yeah, which I, I find that absolutely ridiculous that you've got women who go to that sort of length to prepare their child for something which is deemed inevitable when it's not even compulsory for them to wear it. Hmm. You know, it's... Mm. Yep. So, Frustrating. Hmm. I'm just going to read. Um, I'm going to read something here. I think this is from Multiculturalism: Some Inconvenient Truths by Rumi Hassan, and this is a section on the veil. Um, take the following example of a young French Muslim woman taking up the veil. Quote: I feel completely liberated by the veil. As soon as I put it on, I felt as if I'd blossomed. The veil allows a woman no longer to be a slave to her body. It is the belief that a woman can go far through means other than using her body. Uh, end of quote. Now let us reword this slightly and replace the veil with the prison. I feel completely liberated by the prison. As soon as I entered it, I felt as if I'd blossomed. The prison allows a woman no longer to be a slave to her body. So without dismissing the sincerity of this woman's beliefs... On any rational, humane basis, one would think that something had gone grievously awry in her attitude to life and self-identity. Indeed, there's very good reason to think that she is in need of psychiatric attention. Yet this analogy and reasoning would doubtless be vehemently ridiculed and challenged by multiculturalists. But on what basis? Is there such a distinction between volunteering to hide in a prison and hiding beneath a veil? The only material difference is that the latter stems from an edict from one of the world's major religions, whereas the former does not. Moreover, this is not such a trivial or absurd analogy. 
in Japan, there is a phenomenon, kikikomoro, uh, kikiko, kikikomori, of some mm. one of some one million boys, Scott, and young men. That's a lot, who lock themselves in their bedrooms, hiding from society and its expectations. This is not excused away under any freedom of choice, but is rightly considered a social and psychological problem. So why cannot veiling also legitimately be considered as such? I think that's a good analogy. We're entitled to say that that the Japanese boys are nuts, and so is anyone Mm. voluntarily putting themselves in a sack like a niqab or a a burqa. Yeah, I agree. And then the hijab just leads on to that. Like we've seen uh, articles where... uh, where moderate Muslims are the breeding grounds for radical Muslims and that Mm. teenage daughters of moderate Muslims take a more hardline approach and wear even more conservative clothing than their mothers. Um, Again, this whole slut-shaming thing comes into play. So to the Western women out there who voluntarily wear a hijab niqab or a burqa uh, you are letting down the sisterhood badly well they are and I just want to go back to those original uh, the original article where they they they, they named they didn't actually name them but they they pointed out that there were journos and that sort of stuff writing for this um, papers and that sort of stuff who were blowing it up I, I find that I find that really I find that even more offensive than a Western convert who wears a hijab. You know? Right. The journalists who are yeah. applauding the, um, the fencer yeah, and all who that. Are, yeah, who are apl- applauding the fencer and that sort of thing. Mm. That is really wrong. Mm. Yeah. We're having a good um, uh, Islam bash uh, in this episode, Scott, and we'll keep, <laughs> we'll keep going. Um, Indonesia, we've previously mentioned the governor of Jakarta, Ahok, Who's in trouble? Oh, I know. He's mm. in a hell of a lot of trouble, isn't he? For comments he made to a small group of fishermen in September, and um, they cited a verse in the Quran, Al Maida 51, that says Muslims should not be allies with Jews and Christians. And Ahok, in his response, said, Maybe in your heart you think that you couldn't vote for me, because he's a Christian. But you are being lied to by using Al-Maida 51. If you feel like you cannot vote for me because you'll go to hell, you're being tricked. But that's okay. It's your call. Uh, And for that, uh, those were the statements that he's in trouble with. And this particular article in ABC News by the Indonesian correspondent Adam Harvey thinks that, um, or suggests that President... Widodo is abandoning AHOC and is aligning up with Muslim groups and uh, he doesn't like AHOC's chances. Well, after reading the article, I think I agree with him. I, I'm mm. not convinced that AHOC's... AHOC will get a, a trial mm. as to how fair and balanced it is. That's another story. Mm. Well, apparently in the uh, Indonesian legal system... Uh, it's opaque and confusing, the legal system there. Western rules of evidence don't apply. 
Judges in sex abuse and murder trials discard expert evidence based on the visa status of the witness and give way to irrelevant testimony like how many times per week an accused man had sex with his wife or whether an alleged killer shed fake tears. That's the justice system that AHOC's relying on. <laughs> wouldn't like to be in his shoes. No, I wouldn't like to be in his shoes at all. Yeah. Mm. Change of pace, Scott. Um, yogurt. Who'd have thought we'd be talking about yogurt? <laughs> I read this twice because I, I, it, none of it made any sense to me. You know. <laughs> Dear listener, you may not have realised but realised it, but yogurt is a sexist, white privileged product, according to uh, a scholarly article by Perrin Gurel, assistant professor of American studies at the University of Notre Dame, who has published an incisive postmodern analysis of yogurt in America. So, okay, what you're going to get is just the plain English pricey of what her of what her uh, her publication is about and then we'll give you her postmodernist version of it and uh, so her observations are simple enough um, yogurt was for generations a staple food in the Middle East it was then imported into the US where it was initially seen as strange and exotic advertisers decided to sell it to women as health food that could help them lose weight it became mainstream They added some fruit on the bottom. It was later adopted by hippies and feminists, which increased its popularity. Even some men began to like it. More recently, Greek yogurt, a thicker version, has been successfully marketed. And even more men have adopted that, though Greek yogurt's not really Greek, but Turkish. There you go. There's a history of yogurt in the United States in 30 seconds. But that is not good enough for a postmodernist assistant professor because you there's not enough victims in that, Scott, and there's not enough yeah. like, there's not enough identity politics in that story. So so uh, so she had to trick out her story with all kinds of feminist and racial overtones. So that simple story of yogurt is now is now translated into this. Yeah, exactly. Here it comes. Although feminization and exoticization go together in canonical feminist analysis <clears throat> of Orientalism in the case of yogurt's popularization in the United States, feminization as a diet food has been a significant part of its cultural neutering. In the early 21st century, marketing campaigns for Greek yogurt have modified this cultural neutralisation by foregrounding a non-threatening white ethnicity, while further feminising yoghurt consumption and obscuring connections to the food cultures of the Middle East. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, dear. You this... don't think that... Um... It was because it was popular that it was then marketed and sold and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's, that's not, not enough victims in that story, Scott. 
Not enough victims, not enough identity in that. So the, the yogurt story can be, yes, it's a story of, of white privilege, of sexism, of cultural appropriation in the simple yogurt story. Dear well, idea. it makes me wonder whether or not she eats it. But, you know, it's, oh, it was really infuriating reading it anyway. I, I would imagine she had the proper mindset when she's, when she's eating it, if she does. Well, one would hope so, yes. Mm. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses... But more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Oh, an article here on the atheist atrocities fallacy. So you'll often hear people say, um, uh, you know, a religious believer... You know, they'll be saying, you know, talking about the atrocities committed by the Holy See of the Inquisition, uh, to which the religious person will reply, well, what about Stalin, Pol Pot and Hitler? They were atheists. Exactly. And they killed millions. So this whole article is a lesson in how to poo-poo and fight back against that sort of Allegation, and it relies a fair bit on Christopher Hitchens, who addressed this issue. Um, first up, Hitler. It quotes a number of speeches of Hitler, and um, uh, I never knew that Hitler had such a reliance on the Christian faith. So, uh, yeah, it makes me wonder. I mean, I, when I read that, I thought to myself, "No, nah, Hitler wasn't a religious person. He." I think he probably played up to it to try and get the population alongside with him. Mm. But I don't think he actually personally believed in it. Um, possibly not. He probably, he possibly believed in parts of it and that sort of stuff. I remember at one stage he said in Mein Kampf that um, you know, the, the Nazis were there to complete the work of Christianity. So... Yes, so the Christians set it up. But I'm going to quote here uh, the speeches. So the the footnote for this says it comes from The Speeches of Adolf Hitler by Norman H. Baines at page 19 to 20. And this is quoting Hitler. My feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Saviour as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded by a few followers, recognised these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them, and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out the temple, the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognise more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. For as a Christian, I have also a duty to my own people. 
There's a lot of God-bothering in that statement by Hitler. There's a hell of a lot of God-bothering in there, and um, you know, if you if you take that uh, if you take that on its face, then he's certainly a Christian. Mm. You know, I I'm not convinced he was a Christian. I think he was just using Christianity as a means to get to an end. Yeah. Yes, I think you might be right. So, um, a whole series of quotes about Hitler. Also about the sort of system that was set up that was very anti-Semitic by the church at the time in Germany that Hitler could rely upon. Talks about Stalin in the sense that it also had the same setup in the uh, bureaucracy that made it easy for him to come in, although he didn't have the same... Although Stalin, again, they're saying he was an atheist, but Stalin... Um, was raised as a Christian under the religious influence of his mother who enrolled him in seminary school and he later took it upon himself to study for the priesthood. But it's well admitted that he was an atheist, despite all of that. Mm. Uh, and uh, Pol Pot um, was almost certainly Buddhist and goes on to talk about some of the Buddhist um, notions leading towards what Pol Pot got up to. Um... So I liked that article more towards the end. It talks about a few different um, fallacies, including the false cause fallacy. Uh, the fallacy of false cause occurs whenever the link between premise and conclusion depends on some imagined causal connection that probably does not exist. Example one, Hitler, Stalin and Pol Pot were all non-figure skaters. Therefore, we can conclude that not being a figure skater causes a person to commit atrocities. <laughs> Example two. None of these three dictators believed in the existence of leprechauns. Hence, the lack of belief in leprechauns causes people to commit atrocities. So that's, I reckon, the best answer to the whole sort of um, atheist fallacy. Um, that's that, that, and well-referenced. So... The Atheist Atrocities Fallacy by Michael Sherlock. Yeah, it was um, it was quite lengthy, but it was mm. certainly worth the read. You, mm. know, you, you got through it all and that sort of stuff, but it was worth it. Mm. Scott, uh, we mentioned last week about Tanya Plibersek and the fact that the... The Conservative Education Minister is talking about the unfair funding of some private schools. And Tanya Plebisek mm. said, nothing to worry about in this, nothing to look at, which was just bizarre. And this article by Chris Bonner in the John Menadou blog, which is always good, says that this all stems from the 2004 election because... Mark Latham proposed to take funding from a list of high-fee uh, high schools. And it's just become part of Labor uh, doctrine, if you like, Scott, that that's what cost Labor the 2004 election, was the potential, was that sort of promise. So ever since then, Labor's avoided any idea of that sort of policy. Yeah, and it wasn't until I read this that I was reminded of that uh, hit list that he had, that he had drawn up and that sort of stuff, and he said these schools are going to have to take a, a funding cut. Mm. When you look at this completely openly and objectively, 
you've got to conclude that the private schools are receiving too much money and that the public schools are being left to wither and die. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's time for Latham's hit list not to be rattled around the ALP ever since, spooking anyone who suggests that even escalating private school funding is a no-no, take a dollar from that any school, to actually openly say it, that these schools are getting too much money and they're going to have to take a funding cut. I mean, the principle is correct, what you just stated. It's just a matter of educating people that that is the case and Mm. you've got to do a sell job. So Latham didn't do a good enough sell job, but, uh, you know, a a wannabe Labor, you know, government needs to do that sell job and explain to people the facts and, and if people are presented with them... Enough Labor supporters will agree with them. Well, you know, I mean, it's ridic- it was ridiculous that Julia Gillard went as far as promising that far from losing a dollar, all schools would gain. Mm. Yeah. It was absolutely mind-numbingly stupid of her to do that. You know, yeah. it, it, it's madness. Yeah. Just to take the heat off themselves, they yeah. say these things, but then they just, you know, well, thanks a lot, you know, we have to say for the next 10, 20, however many years until somebody can come along and fix it. So exactly. it just t- takes the heat off. So um, you know, it's, it's really, um, in the political sphere, the concession came from an unexpected quarter when the coalition federal education minister agreed that some schools might be overfunded. Hmm. You know, alas, the penny didn't drop with the ALP. Instead, the ghostly chains just rattled again and it seemed that everyone ducked for cover, led by no less than one of the, one of the otherwise highly regarded deputy in education shadow, Tanya Plibersek. And Tanya Plibersek made a fool of herself. She really did. Mm. You know, it, it was absolutely mind-numbingly stupid what she said. Mm. I mean, mm. with, the, with the government saying that, that was a green light to charge on through with a good idea. Exactly. Exactly, and that they, if they had done that, then the two of them could have gone through on a unity ticket and they would have been able to cut funding to the private schools. Mm. Not entirely, but they should have had a haircut on their funding. Mm. Scott, I haven't asked your opinion on this one. I'd be interested to know. Mm. Um, the Adani coal mine proposed in Queensland. There is mounting speculation that... Uh, that the government, via um, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility Fund, is going to lend a billion dollars to Adani to build a railway line for the coal mine. So it's just a loan, is it? Yes. What do you think and of that? Interest, interest-free loan, I imagine. Oh, I don't know. Even if it is at a, even if it is at a normal interest rate, what do you think of that? If it's at a normal interest rate, and it's then it's it, then it looks like it's set up as an arm's-length deal. I don't have a major problem with it. However, when you read a little bit further on, it says that Adani's got close ties to Singapore. Blah 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 blah. Now we know what Apple does via Singapore. Mm. We therefore be able to. We've seen what uh, BHP's got up to via Singapore. 
It would therefore not be that much of a stretch that Adani will then shift their profits offshore to Singapore and pay a hell of a lot lower tax in Singapore than what they would here. Mm. I think that if the government's going to lend $1 billion of my money to them, they should have an ironclad guarantee that there will be no profit shifting, that the profits that are earned from the coal mine stay in Australia and are taxed in Australia. That's just my opinion. I'm not all that comfortable with the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund being used in that way, but if it is just a loan, if it is if it is a loan and it is set up on a on a commercial basis and that sort of stuff, I don't have a major issue with it. Why are we helping a yeah. coal mine? Like, like we've got a problem with global warming. Why are we helping a coal mine of all things? If it mm. can't stand on its own two feet, can't they get the money from Minister, somewhere else? Let them get, let well, them get their loan from somewhere Tr- else. Yeah, that's what Minister Josh Frydenberg has said. The project needs to stand on its own two feet. Well, if it needs to stand on its own two feet, then they have to pay for the infrastructure and that sort of stuff to get the coal out to the uh, Abbott Point Terminal and get it over to India. What's the, um, old, you know, what's the old adage, Scott, is if you owe the bank... You know, a hundred thousand dollars. You've got a problem. You've got a problem. But if you owe ten million dollars, the bank's got a the problem. The bank's got a problem. problem. Well, exactly. Well, yeah. well, guess what happens if we lend a billion dollars to the Adani coal mine? Then the Australian government's got a problem. Exactly. When its mm. viability is in question because of all sorts of things that come along, the pressure is going to be on the government to bail them out, to help them, to make decisions in their favour, to make sure we get our, million, our billion dollars back. Why mm. would you put yourself in a position of a conflict of interest? That's essentially what you're doing here is you're making it really tough for yourself, ignoring the fact that it's supporting a coal mine, um, but you're just making it really hard for yourself down the track to, to issue hard decisions for environmental reasons or whatever against this coal mine when um, when you're actually owed this money and you're thinking, gee, I wonder if we'll get our money back. Like, if there's such a good deal, if it's so appropriate, if it's, you know, if anybody would lend the money to them, we'll let anybody lend the money to them. I think it's yeah. despicable that we would consider lending a billion dollars to these guys. I think you're right. I mean, look, I hadn't considered that from from that point of view. You're right. Um, I'll have to think about that. But uh, mm. yeah, I think you are. I think you are right. Yeah, because you you then can't get anything that's uh, commercially you know as, appropriate. As a, as a regulator, as a as wanting to hit them with a stick at different times, we we need to be separate and we can't be financially involved in that business at all. So that's my yeah. Opinion. I it, and, and in theory, this fund is separate from the government in that it's an independent body making the decision. But it's government money, for goodness sake. And, and sure, there's a Chinese wall or whatever between the government and the guys who are running that particular fund. But um, it's, it's our money, ultimately, at the end of the day. So the fact that it's some independent fund is just smoke and mirrors. It's still the mm. Australian government. Hmm. Exactly. And, you know, is Adani going to go down the track of some other companies, which this other article we've got here, uh, Turnbull and Morrison Tax Consultants, <laughs> a tongue-in-cheek 
article um, advertising Turnbull and Morrison as tax consultants, noting, noting, dear listener, 679 private and public companies with combined revenues of $462 billion, Scott? Mm-hmm. $462 billion, $143 million, $275,019 paid 0% tax in the 2014-2015 financial year. Over a third of Australia's largest companies pay no tax in the last two financial years. Scott, I can understand the odd company here and there paying no tax for a year because of big write-offs or special circumstances, but once that extends over two years and once that extends to a third of Australia's companies, you just can't have that many extraordinary events going on, I wouldn't have thought. No, I wouldn't have thought so, not without testing their viability. Um, Mm. You know, you can understand a loss, that sort of stuff that comes through from one year to year. Yeah. You know, News Corp, I know it's um, flavour of the month to pick on them Mm. because of Rupert Murdoch and that sort of stuff, but News Corp I could understand because they've got, they, they always report the income. When they do this, they say, you know, yeah. that this is the income of the of the company and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But what people don't realise is reported income is not profit. Right. It is the income that the business generates uh, first up. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Then they've got all the then they've got all the costs that come off that afterwards to come down to their, you know, yes, piddly, um, amount of money that they have left over. Yes. So one percent tax on two point seven billion dollars. That's probably quite reasonable by the time you take into account how much the Australian loses and that sort of stuff. That's probably not too bad. Um, Qantas, I was a little bit surprised at that because they had... um, There was a couple of years ago, they wrote down their A380s. So that I can understand them not paying tax in that year. Mm. The next year, though, when the profit had bounced back quite significantly... I really would have thought that the Qantas tax bill would go up with it, mm. but they're only just paying two hundred thousand dollars tax. It's just You've a pittance. Ask why? Yeah, it is. Yeah. However, you know, again, you, you've got to come back to the original. You know, then we get down to the tech giants like Apple and that sort of stuff. Well, we know where that money's gone. That's gone to Singapore. See, this um, is one of the reasons why an article like this has to quote, uh, you know, reported income, Scott, because. In terms of profit, it all gets diverted to Singapore, so the profit yeah, shows yeah, zero. I know that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what they've got. Yeah, that, that's what that's what's happened here. Mm. Is it's okay for them to report the income side of thing and then say how much tax they paid on the income, mm. but it would be more accurate if they showed what the profits were. So if they had a situation that said income of Apple, reported profits of Apple, tax of Apple. That would be fine. Yeah. But when they've only got the reported income, that's an entirely different story. Yeah. The problem, well, the thing is, the, the profit figure will show zero, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Because the, it ha- everything has been shifted to Singapore. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, hopefully, that legislation we talked about last week or the week before will kick in. Uh, last week, I think it mm. was, yeah. Mm. And start and put an end to this sort of stuff. Exactly. Um, story on Rupert Murdoch. Um, and 
basically gives a little bit of history of his takeover of media in Australia. Uh, makes the point that in 1975, 109 Murdoch journalists went on strike, basically because of the fact that they couldn't write what they wanted to write and everything was being rewritten as uh, with a political leaning of the time. So mm. 109 journalists went on strike um, and it was Hawke and Keating who despised Fairfax and, uh, and waved through Murdoch when he took over the Herald and Weekly Times group. And that led to just a concentration of media ownership in the hands of Rupert Murdoch, which this article says um, is a concentration unknown anywhere in the developed world beyond the partly controlled papers of the communist bloc. Um, And apparently, Scott, in the new year, we will see the Bernardi slash Christensen government reintroduce its relaxation of media ownership laws, including abolishing the two out of three rule, which restricts media companies from owning a TV, newspaper and radio station in the same market. So had you heard of that? In the new year, there's going to be... I had heard of that, yeah. I didn't know that it was being reintroduced in the new year. That mm. doesn't surprise me, though. Um, they're probably going to have a hell of a time getting it via the Senate, though, because the ALP, I imagine, is opposed to it, as would be the Greens. Uh, Pauline Hanson has said in the past that she's opposed to uh, media concentration. Yep. And um, Xenophon wouldn't be in support of it either, so I doubt it will get up. Good. You know. Because even though the power of newspapers and radio and television, for that matter, is decreasing, uh, it's still incredibly unhealthy to have all of that power with Rupert Murdoch. Exactly, yes. Mm. Mm. Uh, Briefly, I love theories, Scott. And um, Mm -hmm. this one I came across... um, uh, The name of the theory is the... The Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention. So I was talking about uh, conflict in the world, and uh, it comes from a book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, by Thomas L. Friedman. And his theory was this, that no two countries that both had McDonald's had fought a war against each other since each got, into, since each got its McDonald's. That was the theory. And okay. uh, the, the sort of premise behind it was that when a country has reached an economic development where it has a middle class strong enough to support a McDonald's network, it would become a McDonald's country and will not be interested in fighting wars anymore because of a, a relatively strong middle class who wouldn't want to enter a war. It falls down because then there's a number of examples where, in fact, this has happened. But... Uh, I like theories. <laughs> Even ones that fall down after a while. Well, India and Pakistan are there. They've got both got McDonald's. Um, Israel and Lebanon have got McDonald's. They fought wars. Mm. Um, yeah, it is. It's not a bad. It's not a bad theory, but it is. It, it uh, demonstrably falls over. It's a, it's a flawed theory. But anyway, if the deal is. Here's the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention, then they'll know what's being talked about. So, um, 
Well, there we go, Scott. That's going to wrap up episode 75. Dear listener, we're going to take a bit of a break. Um, So we'll come back in the new year at some stage. In the meantime, I'm going to organise a few repeats. I'm not sure if I'm just going to take some episodes, holus bolus, and put them in, or um, whether I'll mix and match them a a bit. I was talking to one person, depending on your podcast app, so all of our podcasts, way back to episode two, are available if your app will allow it or if you want to troll through the website. Some apps, I think like the iTunes one, might only go back 10 episodes or something. But um, depending on your app, you can actually access all the old ones. But what I'm going to do is uh, pick out a few of the better ones and, um, and throw those onto the internet over the next few weeks to keep you... You know, you don't want to get out of the loop of listening to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. We want to keep, <laughs> keep you attached. So, Scott, it's been a good year. We it shall, has been a good year. Thank mm, you. We shall refresh yeah. and we will talk to everybody in the new year. But for the moment, goodbye for now. Goodbye. See you later. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.